Presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Manuel Manny Oliver, whose son Joaquin was killed in the 2018 Parkland, Florida high school mass shooting, who calls for a national education strike to demand federal action on gun violence. Labor and racial justice activist Bill Fletcher Jr who examines the Republican Party's recent expulsions of two black legislators in Tennessee and new strategies to confront Governor Ron DeSantis' long list of repressive policies in Florida. And Jeffrey Mackler, staff writer for Socialist Action, who assesses the massive ongoing protests in France, opposing an increase in the nation's pension retirement age. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. In early February, U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin traveled to the Philippines to announce an agreement to expand U.S. bases there as a buffer against China's growing presence in the South China Sea and the Taiwan Strait. The visit reestablished the longtime U.S. military alliance with the Philippines. Ahead of the announcement, Austin met with Philippine President Ferdinand Bongbong Marcos, son of corrupt Philippines dictator Ferdinand Marcos Sr. A spokesperson for China's foreign ministry declared that the U.S. base expansion was an act that escalates tensions in the region and endangers regional peace and stability. The expanded presence of the U.S. military worries Filipino civil society activists who have been targeted by the U.S.-trained Philippine Army. The military has red-tagged a number of land defenders and indigenous rights activists who have opposed dam and hydroelectric projects. These activists face charges of insurrection and rebellion under the Philippines' controversial anti-terrorism law. Brandon Lee, a U.S. citizen who worked as an activist defending indigenous land rights in the northern Philippines, was harassed by the Philippine Army and was shot four times in August 2019. Lee survived the assassination attempt and was airlifted home as a quadriplegic to San Francisco. Lee insisted that the U.S. government has an obligation to ensure that our tax dollars do not fund death squads and human rights violators. ProPublica reports the giant health insurer Cigna used an automated billing system to reject routine medical claims without even opening patient files. Former Cigna executives admitted the health insurance company rejected claims en masse using its PXDX automated review system developed 10 years ago. A 58-year-old patient and physician, Nick Vanterhaden, suspected something was wrong when Cigna rejected paying $350 for a vitamin D screening test as not medically necessary. Terhaden had the test to see if he was at risk for osteoporosis. Over a period of one month, the Cigna medical director who rejected the vitamin D claim also rejected 60,000 other medical claims. 
According to ProPublica's investigation, Cigna rejected 300,000 medical claims in a two-month period last year using the automated system, which rejected each claim in an average time of 1.2 seconds. In many states, insurance medical directors are expected to examine patient records, review coverage policies, and use their medical expertise to approve or deny claims. According to former company executive Ron Hauregan, Cigna knows that many patients will pay such bills rather than deal with the hassle of appealing a rejection. Brandon Johnson, a former teacher, union organizer, and a Democratic county commissioner who was unknown to many Chicagoans just a few months ago, came from behind to win Chicago's mayoral race on April 4th. He defeated conservative Democrat Paul Vallis, a former school executive backed by the city's police union, as well as establishment politicians, and ran on a law-and-order platform pledging to expand the police force and crack down on crime. Johnson mobilized a multi-ethnic coalition made up of young people, black voters on the South and West Sides, a sizable number of Latino voters, and white progressives on the North Side and along the lakefront. Johnson's platform included reopening mental health clinics, creating green jobs and increasing youth employment, as well as implementing the Treatment Not Trauma Plan for non-police response to mental health calls. Johnson captured a slim majority of votes by tapping into the vast network of progressive groups in liberal Chicago, from the powerful teachers' union to smaller ward-based political organizations, who focused on door-to-door fieldwork to rally voters. In Johnson's victory speech, he praised Chicago as one of the world's best cities rather than a hellhole in need of rescuing. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. Another wave of mass shootings has grabbed national headlines this spring. The most recent incident occurred in Louisville, Kentucky on April 10th, when a gunman armed with an AR-15 rifle killed five people and wounded nine others at a downtown bank. Two weeks earlier, an assailant, also armed with an AR-15 rifle, killed three adults and three nine-year-olds at a Christian school in Nashville, Tennessee. When three Tennessee Democratic state representatives joined student protesters at the Capitol, calling for gun control measures, two of them, both young black men, were expelled and lost their seats. A third representative, a white woman, held onto her seat by one vote. Manny Manuel Oliver, whose son Joaquin was killed in the 2018 Parkland, Florida high school mass shooting, visited Nashville to speak out after the shooting there. He and his wife Patricia both left their jobs immediately after their son's death and formed a small nonprofit called Change the Ref. Oliver quit his dream job as the creative director of an art agency, believing the fight to end gun violence requires a full-time commitment. Oliver was arrested at the U.S. Capitol on March 23rd for disrupting a House hearing on gun violence. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with Oliver, 
who discusses his call for a national education strike in response to this latest inflection point, among many, in the fight for gun safety. I have been in many tipping points. I saw how Uvalde was a tipping point, and um, Santa Clarita was a tipping point, and, and I could name many others. And actually, Portland was a tipping point. And I tried, along with my wife, to do everything that we could after losing Joaquin. That was a little more than five years ago. There's always some distraction in the way. There's always a collective intention of going back to how we were before, uh, accepting this as a normal situation, keep on enjoying America. So as a society, we are afraid of any uncomfort zone. We need to keep on with our perfect lives, even if that means that some others won't be able to. Gun violence is hitting anyone at any place. It, it's really impactful when it, when it happens inside a school with nine-year-old kids, seven-year-old kids, six-year-old kids. The bottom line is that, yes, I do believe this is a tipping point again, uh, but I do like the reaction that I see today. Like, I have been motivating in every single speech, in every single interview, the fact that we should get out there and, and try to put together a national strike. And people are following that idea because we all understand that that might be the way. We don't know, but it might be the way. Now, when you talk about strike, I, at first I thought you meant a teacher strike. Then I wasn't sure if you meant the, the students as well. And now I'm wondering if you mean a, a general strike. Yes, I, I invited uh, students first. And of course, teachers, we need, teachers should be concerned about their place of work. And they should be concerned about their student safety, period. What I saw yesterday, they call it Students Demands Action. It, they put together like a national walkout day yesterday. And I, to my understanding, it was very successful. There was a lot of kids outside along with the teachers. However, corporate America needs to get involved. This is when I started thinking and envisioning a, a, a national strike. We all know that in Walmart, as long as I know, there has been two mass shootings inside their stores and they keep selling ammunitions and they keep selling guns in some Walmarts. And that's just an example. In FedEx, they had a mass shooting not so long ago. And FedEx hasn't bring out a statement about that. And where do you stand? Do you stand with the, with the youth? So when you talk about national strike, I think it's a snowball effect. And starting with the youth by not going back to school, I'm not talking about a walkout, talking about a walk away, okay? Until you do this. And I also mentioned what I want to see. I want to see a universal background check. I want to see a ban on assault weapons. I want to see red flag laws. I want to see safe storage laws and permits and registrations in a federal way. That's the only way we can move forward by asking for everything. I'm sick of asking for baby steps, you know, or begging for them to please consider my loss and my pain and do something about it. I'm sick of that. I think we need a, the power to negotiate. And the only way to do that is with a strike. On that initial uh, looking for answers, um, watching the news, I saw how our politicians, our referees, the ones that are, should make the right calls, are actually receiving money from one of the teams. They're actually receiving money from the gun industry for their political campaigns. And that makes us 
play against another team in a very uh, unfair situation. You said you work with some of these bigger groups. You mentioned several of them. Can you give me any sense of how far along organizationally this idea of a strike, a national strike is? Are they? Have you talked to those groups about that? Are any of them on board or not on board? Or Everyone is on board, but not on board. All right? So what does that mean? They will be on board once someone starts this. I respect that. It pisses me off because we, we could all do way better if we start. But I also understand that some of these groups cannot take this risk, uh, this social disruption uh, figure, right? These guys do lobby and they, they're doing other stuff that I don't do. So I get that. Change the Ref is the rebel phase of the gun violence prevention movement. We're proud of being able to do that. So what happens with the strike? We had a few conversations and uh, some of them are waiting for the big the big bang. In the meantime, I am trying to get the big bang together. That was Manny Oliver, co-founder, along with his wife Patricia, of Change the Ref, a group advocating for gun safety measures. Learn more about Oliver's call for a national education strike by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. After the March 27th Nashville school shooting, and subsequent gun safety protests by students and parents at the state capitol, the Republican supermajority expelled two black representatives, Justin Jones and Justin Pearson, for their participation in those protests. A third representative, Gloria Johnson, a white woman who was involved in the same protest, was not expelled. Representative Jones, who was reinstated by the Nashville Metropolitan Council on April 10th, vowed that no unjust attacks on democracy will go unchallenged. The expulsions in Tennessee have become a new front in the battle for the future of American democracy and reminds us of the Republican Party's dangerous national embrace of minority rule and white supremacy. For years, the GOP has increasingly used the tools of voter suppression, gerrymandering and attempts to invalidate majority votes in elections and referendums, to impose their extremist and unpopular policies on constituents. In states across the country, Republicans have engaged in a culture war that bans books, erases the slave era and racism in American history, wages attacks on the LGBTQ community, while criminalizing abortion and denying women reproductive health care. An increasing number of political observers believe the GOP is clearly on a march toward authoritarianism or fascism. Your reporter spoke with Bill Fletcher, Jr., a longtime labor and racial justice activist, former president of Trans-Africa Forum, and author. Here he examines the Republican Party's recent expulsions of two black legislators in Tennessee and how pro-democracy forces can effectively challenge Governor Ron DeSantis's long list of repressive policies in Florida. I think when we're looking at Tennessee, we're looking at a complete affront to democracy. It's, it's lunacy. When you think about that two of these three representatives expelled for issues of decorum, whereas in the U.S. Congress, during the January 6th coup attempt, you had various representatives of the Republican Party who, in one way or another, were supporting the coup effort and they haven't been expelled. They haven't been jailed. The disproportionate penalties is just is amazing. 
So that's why it's not just race. It's race and authoritarianism. You know, I wanted to get your comment on what we see unfolding in Florida. Governor Ron DeSantis is widely believed to be uh, thinking about launching his presidential campaign for 2024. But meantime, he's ushered in many authoritarian policies targeting the LGBTQ community, education censorship, banning of books, and a whole list of just extremely right-wing authoritarian pieces of public policy. There are many people who look at Florida and believe it is the Republicans' laboratory for fascist public policy. What do you think? The Republican agenda is to overturn the 20th century. And so they want to turn things back pre-1912, basically. Florida is the Spain of the United States in the sense that the Spanish Civil War of 1936 to 1939 was a testing ground for uh, Nazi Germany and, and fascist Italy in its preparation for a world war. Florida is a testing ground for the right-wing authoritarians, the notion of whatever they can get away with. Now, Florida has some particularities, including uh, a large emigre population um, of well-to-do immigrants. And this is really important to recognize that we're talking about well-to-do people, Mm -hmm. for the most part, who have come here to get away from the pink tide, so-called, in Latin America, And uh, that's not true in most of the rest of the country. We have had a weak Democratic Party in Florida for a very long time, and it had no uh, coherent strategy. And the picking of uh, Charlie Crist to run in the last election, only because of the fact that in the election four years ago, it had been tight, was a complete misread of the situation that we're currently in. So there's hopefully now some some reassessing that's going on. I know that there is on the ground uh, of grassroots organizations that uh, like the Dream Defenders, Florida Rising, and others that are really rethinking how to launch the right kind of counterattack. Um, but it's going to be very much of an uphill uphill struggle. There's no question about that. In order to carry out that struggle, we have to force progressive forces there have to turn the tables on the right. So, for instance, I've been advocating it to whoever will listen. DeSantis pushed through the law around so-called critical race theory. It's not about critical race theory. It's about history. And the argument of the law is that there can't be anything that's taught that offends a child or that makes a child feel guilty about something over which they had no control. So my argument has been that, okay, fine. So now what we need to do in Florida is there needs to be a massive class action by African-Americans and their allies that challenges U.S. history as taught in the Florida school system. Because U.S. history as taught denies our significance, makes us feel bad, does not give any context to how it is that we came to the United States or why, misleads us, makes us feel bad. So we should use the same law and jack them up. So we've got to be thinking in a very different way about how to take on the opponents. I remember reading about during the American Revolution, the British constantly complained that the Continental forces under Washington weren't fighting fair. So the British are marching around in red uniforms, 
in the woods, and they're getting shot and killed by the U.S. troops that are hiding in the bushes and everything and not dressing in the appropriate uh, red uniforms. And the British are complaining. Instead of changing their attitude towards the war that they were in, they're going to complain about lack of fairness. I think that that's part of the problem here. You know, the Republicans aren't playing fair. No, they're not, because the nature of political warfare has changed fundamentally. And if you keep fighting the last war, you're going to lose. That was Bill Fletcher Jr., a longtime labor and racial justice activist. He's the author of They're Bankrupting Us and 20 Other Myths About Unions. Find more analysis and commentary on the Republican Party's authoritarian tactics and policies by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. French President Emmanuel Macron narrowly survived two no-confidence votes after he forced through an unpopular pension reform law that raises the retirement age from 62 to 64. Macron's decision to invoke Article 49.3 of the Constitution, which gives the government power to bypass Parliament, has enraged many across the country and led to mass protests of millions of people across France. The working-class protest movement, led by French unions in the left bloc in Parliament, has nearly brought France to a standstill, with closures of schools and airports, in addition to a three-week garbage strike in Paris. Talks between union officials and the government on April 5th failed to reach an agreement on withdrawing the pension age increase. France's Constitutional Council will review the pension reform legislation on April 14th, Although it has the power to strike down the bill or parts of it, there's little hope they'll scrap the measure entirely. Labor unions and their allies have announced a 12th day of nationwide strikes on April 13th. Your reporter spoke with Jeffrey Mackler, a staff writer with Socialist Action, who assesses the ongoing French protests against President Macron's attempt to impose the retirement age increase against overwhelming popular opposition. Well, the demonstrations against his January announcement that he was going to change the French pension system to increase the retirement age from 62 to 64 have been unprecedented. This coming Tuesday will be the 12th round of nationally coordinated strikes and protests and blockades by workers and students alike in France that have reached the numbers almost unprecedented in the modern era. Every major union in France, normally divided and fractioned off uh, on different political tendencies, has united to call these demonstrations that have brought literally millions of people into the streets on a regular basis. What's key is the unity displayed by working people. They are mobilizing throughout France, closing down rail lines, subways, public transportations, airports, oil refineries, schools, universities. Every form of corporation in French life is under attack. 
that's where we stand today. We're looking at the largest demonstrations in French modern history, probably since 1968. And the outcome will be determined by the decisions of the French working class, who now are beginning to say, rather than the intermittent rolling strikes that have been called for 11 different occasions, should we close down all of France? Should we organize a general strike in the country, which basically not only poses the question to Macron as to whether or not he will withdraw, which is the main united demands of the unions, but whether or not his government can survive. Jeffrey, I did want to ask you, why have these changes in the French pension system struck such a nerve with the majority of people in France, given the fact that many other democracies and industrialized nations in the Western world have higher retirement ages than France does? Today, the average French person lives some 23, 25 years after retirement, a good portion of their lives. Under the old system, they were lucky if they survived two years after their retirement. Today, the French can expect, because they have a good health care system, to live a wholesome life. They don't consider work the end of their life rather than retirement. And by the way, French retirement provides for a standard of living of the French population, which is higher than the average person. In the United States, when you think of someone retiring, they usually can't survive on Social Security. Their quality of life and standard of living is generally reduced. In France, French people retire on 75% of their last highest income. And not only that, but they have other retirement benefits, and they also have less expenses. The French people don't want to give that up. The government says, well, we can't afford it. We have to cut back on your retirement, on the benefits, and also on the number of years required. The French people say, why should you cut our lives back? Why not tax the rich? And Macron literally says, well, if we tax the rich, that'll hurt the economy. As if his first and only consideration, the welfare of the rich is primary and not the lives of millions of French working people. It's shaping up to be a major battle of historic proportions. The French working class wants to live a decent life, and that includes the young people who understand that if this is passed, their retirement will also be dramatically affected, not to mention other factors in the context of the French retirement system, and that is the nature of the work, dispensation for very difficult work. The government wants to eliminate all that, and the French people are saying no. And I think the people of the world, including Americans, are looking at the French. That was Jeffrey Mackler, National Secretary of Socialist Action and a staff writer for their publication. Find more analysis and commentary on France's pension reform protests by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed 
by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WHYS in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, KCBP in Modesto, California, KGHI in Westport, Washington, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.